Hey, it's Cecilia. Today, we're replaying an episode from last June. It was published shortly after the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. It's a conversation with Stanford law professor and gun law expert John Donahue about the decade when the U.S. had a federal ban on assault weapons. Yes, that actually happened. It was signed in 1994. Without a similar ban in place now, gun control lies in the hands of state legislatures. That's especially evident right now in Tennessee. The state is grappling with last week's shooting in yet another elementary school, which resulted in the deaths of six people. Hundreds of protesters packed the Tennessee Capitol to call for the Republican-led state house to pass gun control measures. Three Democratic members joined that protest. And on Monday, in an extraordinary move, Republican state lawmakers took steps to expel them. I'm resharing this conversation about the assault weapons ban of 1994 because it's timely. Partisan politics are intensifying and dividing state legislatures over gun control. There was a time when a bipartisan federal effort worked. It may be helpful to remember that, especially now. Here's our episode from last June. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. It may be hard to believe now, especially for younger generations, but the United States used to have a federal ban on assault weapons. Senator Dianne Feinstein has been credited as the main architect of that ban. She was moved to action because of a mass shooting that took place inside a San Francisco office building at 101 California Street in 1993. The sound of gunshots sent terror through employees high up in a San Francisco office building this afternoon as a heavily armed gunman entered the offices of a prestigious law firm and began killing people. The next year, President Bill Clinton signed into law the federal assault weapons ban. The 19 assault weapons banned by this proposal are deadly, dangerous weapons. They were designed for one purpose only, to kill people. And as long as violent criminals have easy access to them, they will continue to be used to kill people. Among those 19 weapons included in the ban was the AR-15. That's the same style of weapon that was used by a gunman to murder 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, two weeks ago. This semi-automatic rifle is extremely popular with gun owners. The NRA has even called it America's rifle. It's been linked to some of the most tragic mass shootings in recent history, including the school shootings in Newtown and Parkland. So why did the 1994 ban, which targeted deadly weapons like the AR-15, disappear in the first place? As part of the ban's negotiations to secure its passage, there was a sunset provision put in place which allowed the ban to automatically expire after 10 years unless it was renewed by a vote of Congress. That's exactly what happened in 2004. Stanford law professor and gun law expert John Donahue explains. Unfortunately, when George W. Bush was running for president, he said he would support the retention of the assault weapon ban. But by the time 2004 came around, Republicans could not go against the gun lobby, and he acquiesced. Donahue is my guest on today's episode of Fifth and Mission. On Friday, I talked to Mike Roos, the architect behind California's assault weapons ban. With renewed calls for Congress to pass national gun control measures, including from President Joe Biden, today we're talking about gun legislation on the federal level. Donahue has studied gun violence throughout his career, and he's done extensive research looking at how effective the federal assault weapons ban was from 1994 to 2004. The results, 
probably won't surprise you. The ban worked. Here's my conversation with John Donahue. Before we dive into your research, I was wondering if you can explain for me, how do you define a mass shooting in your studies so that we can understand how you looked at these incidents in relation to the assault weapons bans? So good question. There are many different definitions of mass shootings that are out there. And when I originally got into the work of looking at the impact of assault weapons on mass shootings, I was brought to the issue by some work done by Louis Claravis, a researcher at Columbia University, who had indicated from his research looking at very significant mass shootings, those in which six or more individuals were killed, seemed to both drop in the 10 years of the federal assault weapon ban and then increase in the period after. But I also used uh, other definitions of mass shootings because, as I said, there are different definitions that are used. The standard definition in many circles has been four deaths in a single incident other than the shooter. But Mm -hmm. other data sources will sometimes use four individuals shot other than the shooter. And both of those are frequently employed in the discussion, sometimes without great clarity as to which definition is being used. Well, the recent tragedies definitely fit that description. And you researched the impact of the federal assault weapons ban, which was in place, as you mentioned, for a decade from 1994 to 2004. It's often portrayed as banning particular guns, but it went beyond that. What was restricted under the ban? So the ban itself had two really important dimensions to it. One was the focus on the actual assault weapons, things like the AR-15 that was used in the recent shootings. And then a second component was restricting the size of the magazine that is inserted into the gun and allows a number of rounds to be fired without reloading. And both of those, I think, are important elements of an assault weapon ban. But unfortunately, the ban was allowed to lapse in 2004, which was sort of part of the initial challenge to get it passed. The gun lobby was not powerful enough to stop the passage, but they both watered it down in a number of ways. And they were able to get this provision that said, if it's not reenacted in 10 years, it goes away, which is very unusual Mm -hmm. for a federal law to say that. Interestingly, crime was falling fairly sharply throughout the entire tenure of the Clinton administration. And so we did see drops in mass shootings during that period, starting in 1994, when the assault weapon ban went into effect. But there was uncertainty. Did this just mean, you know, crime was going down and and it wasn't the assault weapon ban that was driving it, but rather the downward trend in crime? And so it takes a while then to allow a researcher to get enough data to draw strong causal inferences of what the impact of the law is. And sadly, many researchers did not understand this point. And so a Justice Department study in 2004 said, you know, we can't really see that the assault weapon ban made a big difference. But you started to see that it did make a big difference after the data came in in the years after the ban was allowed to lapse. 
So simply looking at the data in 2004 did not give you enough data and evidence to really assess what the true impact of the law was. But we now see gun deaths and incidents were suppressed during the 10 years. And when you took off that ban, the number of mass shootings rose very dramatically and has continued to rise very dramatically. There hasn't been, you know, widespread consensus on the impact of the ban and different studies have found different results. In 2019, you analyzed the assault weapons ban and its impact on mass shootings. What was your strategy in sort of figuring out the ban's effect, if you could talk me through how you conducted that study? Yeah. So if you're working in the gun area, of course, there are always competing studies. And part of the reason for that is uh, there has been, and this goes back all the way to the tobacco uh, lobby years ago, trying to undermine the evidence on the impact of tobacco on cancer. But uh, certain economic interests, such as the tobacco industry for tobacco and now the gun industry for gun policy, will fund studies that are designed to cast doubt. So you do have to be very careful what studies you're looking at, because some of them are actually designed to create disinformation. Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. The second thing is it turns out to be a, a tricky empirical endeavor to tease out the causal influence of a federal law. And so some very legitimate scholars have looked at this and have perhaps not adopted the best approach or did their study too early for enough data to be amassed. We do know two different ways that you can look at this question is to simply plot over time what is the pattern of mass shootings. And you can see a fairly consistent long-term upward trend. But if you plot that long-term upward trend, you see that it both has a 10-year dip in it which is just the, the 10 years of the federal assault weapon ban, and that the period after the assault weapon ban is allowed to lapse shows an acceleration in that upward trend. A second approach looks at all 50 states and says, we know that some states have adopted assault weapon bans, and we can look to see what's happening for mass shootings over, uh, let's say, a 35-year period controlling for the fact that some states suddenly will pass assault weapons bans. And um, the conclusion, again, is very statistically significant. If you have those dimensions of an assault weapon ban and or a high-capacity magazine restriction, you do see uh, deaths and incidents of mass shootings decline. What characteristics of that federal ban on assault weapons really curbed shootings and deaths, if we had to be specific about the, the specific dimensions of that ban? I don't think there's any question that the, the component of the assault weapon ban that restricted the size of the magazine was very important because the mass shooters get into these incidents and if they can fire 30 or even 100 bullets without reloading, uh, they're just able to kill more people. People can't get away. And in many episodes where they are stopped, it's when they're reloading that they're either tackled or taken down by police. Mm -hmm. Now, the gun lobby says things like, well, we know the assault weapon ban can't make a difference because you could still buy these other weapons that are very dangerous. But here is the point that they have failed to appreciate, I believe. If you look at the mass shooters, 
Many of them are very troubled young men. Frequently, they've been bullied. They feel very powerless. And what they want is not only to have a weapon that is very destructive and lethal, but a weapon that looks powerful and in their hands scares other people and they take pictures of themselves. And indeed, the gun industry knows this. And in 2005, they managed to get a federal immunity statute passed so that they could advertise in very pernicious ways to encourage people like Adam Lanza, who was the mass shooter in Sandy Hook, or some of these other recent mass shooters to go out and buy these very uh, lethal weapons. And so it's not Mm -hmm. purely the functionality of the gun, but it's the combination of the merchandising, the appearance of the gun, and of course, some of these elements of the gun do make it more lethal as well. And I think that's one thing that has many times been overlooked. John, your research highlights how effective the federal assault weapons ban was from 1994 to 2004. Should a new legislation look similar to that ban or something different? Yes. So Canada announced a series of very progressive gun measures that are designed to promote safety in in the country and deal with their increasing gun violence. And they are set to impose a five-round limit on the size of the magazines on these semi-automatic rifles. So if you could get five, that would be better than 10. But 10 is certainly better than the current situation where people go in with 30 or even 100 rounds. So that's clearly one issue. At the very least, let's get back to 10, as a number of states have. Although I I might add, there have been efforts to overturn these bans in the federal courts, which is another nightmare. But the, the, the second feature that I would give more attention to is to make the definition of the assault rifle a little bit more capacious. And so, for example, after a horrific mass shooting in Australia in 1996, they simply got rid of semi-automatic rifles that allowed you to have these detachable magazines. And that would obviously help quite a bit if you went that far, because it removes all of these issues about cosmetic changes being used to circumvent uh, the law, which I think can be very troubling. More with John Donahue after a quick break. When we come back, what does he make of our current political climate? Is there hope for passing any gun legislation through Congress? We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. We're back with a replay of my conversation with Stanford Law Professor John Donahue, which we published last June. We wanted to share it again in light of last week's elementary school shooting in Tennessee and the protests at the state capitol, which resulted in Republican lawmakers moving to oust Democratic members who spoke out for gun control. Breaking news of the worst kind tonight. 15 people are dead after a mass shooting. Sadly, at a another mass shooting has taken a horrifying pattern. Once again, school children gunned down by one. But let us begin, sadly, tragically, horribly, once again, with another mass shooting, this time in Tulsa. Oklahoma. Those are all news reports from just the last few months. 
While we got a reprieve from mass shootings during the pandemic, they have sadly resumed. I'm back with Stanford law professor John Donahue. John, in a New York Times opinion piece that you wrote, you note that, quote, if we continue at the post-2014 pace, by 2024, we will have had more than 10 times as many gun massacre deaths in that 10-year period as we had during the decade of the federal assault weapons ban. You wrote that in 2019. How are we trending now? Has the pandemic changed any of your projections? The pandemic, at least in the early days, did slow down the public mass shootings, which was one of the few benefits of the pandemic. Sure. But now we're sort of back on track and we've returned to the very steep upward trend. And we already surpassed by quite a bit, even though we're only, uh, how many years in? Eight years into this last 10-year period, we've already surpassed any other 10-year period in terms of mass shootings. So Mm -hmm. I think the projections are unfortunately accurate. And indeed, my examination of the issue has been very colored by the fact that there has been a dramatic change in the nature of weaponry and firearm purchasing in this country that I think will just make the problem of mass shooting worse and increasingly worse until something is done to restrain it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to give an example of why I believe this so strongly, another mass shooting in Texas, not all that far from the one in Uvalde, was the Sutherland Springs Baptist Church shooting in 2017. And this, again, was a very troubled young man who had an assault rifle, which he proudly posted on Facebook. You know, this was going to give him this power. And he got high-capacity magazines and did a lot of things to make that gun more lethal. And he went to a Baptist church and stood outside the church and fired 254 bullets through the walls of the church before he ever entered the church, killing 26 people who were sitting in church pews because he was firing across at head level. And there was nothing even close to this level of lethality in 1791 when the Second Amendment was adopted. But even 30 years ago, you did not have widespread ownership of anywhere near this type of weaponry. And now the number of people buying these guns is growing. Mm -hmm. So I am very concerned that we are going to end up with 100, 200, 300, or even more killed in a horrific mass shooting, uh, then I do think the country will take action because at that point it will be so apparent that we have ended up in a horrific place. But how many more people are going to have to die before we get to that point? I don't know. The Washington Post reported that there were 12 mass shootings uh, over Memorial Day weekend alone. It's just adding to the urgency of a need for a federal assault weapons ban. Do you think anything is possible in this current political climate? How are you feeling about it as a researcher and someone who has to engage in these debates so often? I hate to have to say this, but I think nothing is possible at this point. The Republican Party cannot stand up to the gun lobby at this point. And so without the support of the Republicans, given the filibuster rule in the Senate, 
there's mm-hmm. no way to get to any significant federal action. And unfortunately, the gun lobby has realized that an extremist and intransigent position on this issue is economically beneficial for them. And so they are not inclined to give up the economic benefits of that extremist position. If we talk about gun violence more broadly, we know that mass shootings account for only about 1% or less than 2% of gun deaths in the U.S. Most of it comes from handguns. Is the priority on limiting assault weapons, should that still be a priority or should we be also thinking about other things? Oh, yes, we definitely should be thinking about other things. Sometimes the forces who are trying to resist change try to minimize the overall numbers of deaths from uh, mass shootings. And, you know, they have a point to some degree, but the bottom line is that mass shootings are also profoundly damaging to the social fabric of the United States. And uh, if you look at the consequences of school mass shootings on child performance and child health and mental health welfare, they're astonishingly troubling. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, as you note, if you're only looking at deaths from mass shootings, the numbers are quite a bit smaller than just the number of people shot in these mass shootings. And it's no picnic to take a bullet from an assault rifle. Even if you survive, your life is very frequently, tragically, and sometimes horrifically altered in a way that imposes enormous costs, not only on the individual and the individual's family, but also on the entire medical structure. So I do think uh, minimizing the mass shooting problem is unwise, but to your broader point, there's much to be done on the broader issues of gun violence. You know, we, we not only stand out in the world as the leader in mass shootings, but we also dominate among affluent countries in deaths by firearm, both through accidents and homicide, but also through suicides. So there's mm-hmm. much to be done in this arena. There probably is no public policy measure across the board on any domain that is as widely supported as universal background checks. You know, NRA members overwhelmingly support this, but unfortunately, NRA members have very, very little influence over the gun lobby. The gun merchants have the big influence there, and they don't want universal background checks because it does cut into sales. and, And this is all about money not about the Second Amendment or anything else, because nobody who understands constitutional law thinks there's any impediment to adopting universal background checks. So, John, we all can feel this. The gun control debate is really exhausting, and it feels like we're repeating the same conversation over and over again. What do you think is the crux of the debate at this moment compared to where we've been before in the past? or? Are we at the same exact place? Unfortunately, we are at the worst place ever. You know, for almost 200 years, there was no individual Second Amendment right to have any gun in the federal constitution. That was created in 2008 by a decision in Heller versus District of Columbia. We are about to get in the next couple of weeks a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that will likely expand the damage of the Heller decision. 
And we know that there are members of the U.S. Supreme Court who would like to strike down every one of these rules that states like California and New York have already implemented. So rather than moving forward, there's real danger that we may lose the California assault weapon ban. We're almost certainly going to lose the California restrictions on carrying guns outside the home, but we may lose the ban on high capacity magazines. We may lose the very important requirement that you need to go through a background check before you buy ammunition. So many, many things are happening in the federal courts that I think are going to make us move in the wrong direction. And so we're in a very precarious position. Mm -hmm. Well, John, it's a very sobering topic, but I appreciate your work so much and for the clarity that it brings. Thanks for your time. Good to talk to you. John Donahue is a professor of law at Stanford Law School and is also a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. For more coverage of both California and federal gun legislation, check out sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app. And if you missed my interview with former Assemblyman Mike Roos, who wrote California's assault weapons ban in 1989, that's the episode of Fifth Emission right before this one. Thank you to Sarah Feldberg, Karen Creighton, and King Kaufman for the production help, and to you for listening.